Check, check, check. Oh, I got microphone. Wonderful thing, these batteries. They work when you use them. Would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Heavenly Father, we love you, and we are here to serve you, and we're here to hear from you. We ask that you speak to us from your word. Teach us who we should be in you. Transform us, change us, so that we can be those things that you want us to be, but so that we can also be more like you and reflect you in the world around us. Lord, we ask that you would reveal yourself to us this morning, both in your word and in each one of us. We pray in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, as you know, today is the third Sunday of Advent. It's a season of anticipation. It's a season of preparation for the birth of Jesus Christ. Um, I've noticed that if we're not careful, we can jumble things together a little bit. We can blend Christmas and Advent together into one big, long Christmas celebration. But Advent and Christmas are not necessarily the same thing. Advent is not an extension of Christmas, uh, a way to make Christmas longer. And it's not just a time of preparation for Christmas. It's not just something as if Christmas is the ultimate end of Advent. Um, it's something very special all by itself. The secular world blends all of this together. They just throw it all together in one big package. Um, they, they don't call it Advent, of course. They call it the holiday season. And it's filled with beautiful things like lights and cookies and gift buying and Hallmark, lots of Hallmark. Uh, Bonnie and I have now engaged in watching, I think, five, maybe six Hallmarks. I know she's ahead of me because she watched more yesterday. But, uh, of course, I, I was a prisoner in my own house for a period of time. And so, uh, because of the flu and bronchitis, so, so I, I was unable to fight back against the Hallmark surge. That's my story, and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> but as I've watched these movies, as we've watched these movies together, I've noticed that each one desperately tries to capture the Christmas spirit, that joy of Christmas, and then hang on to it for all it's worth, it's just to, to, to kind of milk it for everything that it's got. And they're good stories, mostly, but it's mostly a Christmas that is Christless. It's a Christmas without Jesus, and it's not Advent. Advent is from a Latin word that says or means a coming or an arrival. It's from the translation of the Greek word parousia, and that, that word is always, almost always, anyway, in the New Testament referring to the second coming of Jesus. And so, you know, in the Old Testament, they were waiting for the advent of Christ, the coming of Christ, and we now wait for the second coming of Christ, for the return of Christ. Advent is less focused on the baby in the manger than it is on the coming of the Messiah. That's what this season is about. In the Old Testament sense, the people of God had been waiting a very, very long time for the Messiah to come. 
the first solid mention of the coming of the Messiah in the Old Testament is right there at the beginning of the book of Samuel in chapter 2. Hannah is barren and she goes before the Lord at the temple and she prays for a son. And when God answers her prayer, she sings this beautiful praise song of joy. Uh, in fact, uh, her words even begin, my heart rejoices in the Lord. My heart rejoices in the Lord. Now think of the circumstances. She's prayed for a child. She's been barren for years. She hasn't had a child, didn't expect a child, but God gave her a child. And she promised that if God gave her a child, she would give that child to God. And so here, she has this beautiful boy that is born, and she leaves him behind. And she surrenders him to the service of God at the temple as a Nazarite. And, and here she starts this praise to God. My heart rejoices in the Lord. There is rejoicing at a time that had to be very painful for her at the same time as she let go of her young son. But she found her joy in God in difficult circumstances. Hannah's song is, is not just a song of praise, but it's also prophecy. It, it's the first prophecy that mentions the Messiah, the anointed one. And the prophecy, uh, we know, is estimated to have been written about the year 1100 B.C., that's a long time ago. You know, there are others written later, but some of God's people had been waiting 1,100 years for the coming of the Messiah. That's more than 40 generations. Think about that. That's a long, long time to wait before the Messiah is born. It means waiting when the goal isn't in view, when you can't even see it on the horizon. It means waiting during the invasion of armies. It means waiting during the deliverance, uh, or waiting for deliverance when they got carried off into captivity. It means waiting through stressful times. It means waiting through times of drought and loss and great times of longing for freedom. Longing for the full redemption of Israel. And so that's why when the message finally comes, those shepherds out there minding their flocks, and that message comes about joy, it is the fulfillment of generations of longing for the Messiah to come. You have this group of shepherds, they're out there in the fields and and they're not able to worship at the temple like other people because they're considered ceremonially unclean because of what they do. And they were considered outcasts by their own people. In fact, some people suspected that they were thieves or worse. And what happens? This is who God decides to talk to. This is who God brings the promise to. And it says, suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified, but the angel reassured them, don't be afraid, he said, I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. We're talking about Jesus here. 
We're talking about the Messiah here. The fulfillment of 1,100 years of waiting. Why is this news of great joy? Why is it good for all the people? Because this is what they were waiting for, what they were hoping for, what they were longing for. You know, I'm sure over that period of time, some people just gave up hope. Oh, this ain't happening. This is never coming. But God hadn't given up on them, right? The longing would be satisfied in Jesus. Let me ask you a question this morning, and maybe it's a series of questions. Do you ever have a longing in your heart for something? Do you long for something? I mean, think about it. You're longing for something you've hoped for, and maybe you're still hoping for. You know, we long for a lot of things. You know, we long for the peace of a child lost in life's struggle. We long for a reunion with a lost loved one. We long for a lost dream, one that had a lot of promise at one point. We long for a loveless marriage to become fresh again. Maybe you long for respect or just a little light at the end of the tunnel that's not a train, right? Or maybe you're longing for a little of something to genuinely hope in, for some joy. We long for something. Everybody longs for something, or maybe even someone. God intended for the longing that we're searching for to find its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus himself, to find our joy in him, even as we're longing for these other things, even as our longing is unfulfilled, God wills that we would find joy, even in the darkness, through Jesus. I don't mind admitting to you here this morning, this is a confession, last week I was on drugs <laughs> for my bronchitis. <laughs> Um, some of those medications, they included steroids, and they kept me wide awake almost all night. One morning, I, I finally got up, and I went down at 6 o'clock in the morning and made myself some breakfast, having not slept at all, <laughs> and, and had my breakfast, and then I went and laid down and finally got some sleep. And, uh, you know, I found out in the middle of all those nights that you can only watch so many episodes of Chicago Med or Bones or whatever, you know. <laughs> At some point, you just get kind of burned out on it. So I did some Bible reading. That's a good thing. And one night, I found myself reading in the prophets. I read in, in Nahum. I read through Nahum and Habakkuk and then through parts of Zephaniah. And, um, and as I'm reading, I'm praying, as, as I hope you do when you read the scriptures. I'm praying, God, please show me what it is that you want me to see here. What is it you want to point out to me? What do you want me to notice? And, and I have to tell you, this section of Scripture is pretty grim. <laughs> There's not a lot of light in this section. This is all pretty dark. Um, and, I, and it's easy to wonder, you know, where's the lesson in all of this darkness? There was so much waiting through terrible times and enduring awful circumstances. And, and yet you need to know that at this point, God's people were not following God and God raises up Nineveh to punish them. 
And then God punishes Nineveh. And, and there's all this darkness, all this dark talk going on. But there in the darkness, about 4 o'clock in the morning, I came across this. I want to share this with you. This is right in the middle of some of the darkest passages in Scripture. In chapter 3 of Habakkuk, he stops his doom and gloom. He pauses his anger. He puts his anger on hold. He puts his crying out on hold, and he begins to praise God. He says, even though the fig trees have no blossoms and there are no grapes on the vines and even though the olive crop fails and the fields lie empty and barren and even though the flocks die in the fields and the cattle barns are empty, that's not positive, any of that stuff, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in the God of my salvation. Now, now, he's finding joy in the darkness because there's not much light. He's not finding joy in the darkness itself. I mean, nobody does that unless you're a masochist, right? You, you don't find joy in the darkness, but he found joy in the darkness. He began to see a light. He began to see again the light of God, even though everything that was going on around him was awful. And there's still God himself to hope in. And that's a joyful thing. That's worth celebrating. That's worth rejoicing in. It, you know, we sing this song, the song and it has the word rejoice. You know, rejoice is this beautiful word. It's an intentional joy. When we rejoice, we are, we are joying. <laughs> We're doing it on purpose. We are sharing joy. You know, this isn't the only place I've seen this kind of thing. I mean, in, in my reading of the scriptures over the years, I've noticed time and time again that there are places of wildly inappropriate joy. I'd like to get that on a t-shirt. You're in a place where there, there shouldn't be any joy. You're in a place where there should only be darkness. There's a, a place where you shouldn't be celebrating, and yet there in the middle of the Scripture, there's stuff just like this passage where, where there's a sudden break in the action, a sudden setting aside of the sadness, and joy breaks through. C.S. Lewis talked about that when he talked about the grief that he experienced when he lost his wife to cancer, and and, and being surprised by joy in the middle of the darkness. Our joy is not found in the circumstances of life because sometimes, frankly, the circumstances really suck. Can I say that and get away with that? <laughs> no? Okay, I won't say suck again. Okay. But sometimes life is really terrible. But God never changes. He can be trusted always. It's how Job in his suffering can say about God, though he yet slay me, yet I will trust in him. Because God is trustworthy. He is not saying this because Job's having a good time. Hardly. It's because God is trustable, and God is light, 
and all goodness and all hope and all love all wrapped together in one. And he can trust that God, the God that he knows. Shelley talked last week about your previous experiences and how that lends itself to your future belief. This is true here as well. When we're in those very dark, dark times, our previous experience with God leads us to hope and leads us to believe in the trustable God. Isaiah, following the birth of, or, or, or predicting the birth of Jesus, says, The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation and increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest. We see a light, even in the middle of darkness. Jesus is that light in the darkness. He's a cause for joy. Where do we find Advent joy? You know, this we lit the joy candle today. You know, we're supposed to be talking about joy and the rejoicing part of things. Where do we find that joy? Well, I contend that it's in God himself and this promise that he's coming again. That darkness doesn't win this fight. The light wins. The light that's coming in Jesus. You know, sadly, um, I think we Christians have taken on an attitude of it's all going to burn. It's all going to burn. Nothing matters in the world around us. It's all going to burn in the end. We don't need to worry about it. But God's attitude is it's all going to be redeemed and restored and recreated into something new and beautiful. We're going to pick up our study in Revelation, by the way, again in the new year, and, and we're going to be spending most of our time focusing on that latter part of Revelation that talks about exactly that, that beautiful coming recreation promise. Sometimes we fail to see the joy that's right in front of us. Have you ever noticed that? You know, I can get locked into that. On our trip to Rome to visit our daughter, Stephanie, we saw a lot of churches, as you can imagine. Uh, I think I, I was estimating, you know, somewhere around, I was in around 12 of the major churches in Rome. And um, some of the most biggest and beautiful churches in the entire world. The art alone is amazing. And it can be a little overwhelming. <laughs> I spent an afternoon uh, one day with my son-in-law, Luca, just exploring churches. And it's a good thing to do that with Luca. He's, he's a linguist, and so he reads several languages. And so, uh, five languages, Bonnie says. So we were uh, at a church, one of the oldest churches in the Western Hemisphere, and we were standing there, and they had been doing excavations underneath. And, and all of these gravestones they had found, they underneath they had mounted them on the walls so you could walk up and see them and then and we spent a better part of an hour where he would just translate from latin and tell me about this person's life here's this person that lived just after the fourth century here's this person who lived in the eighth century here's this person that may have come here on a crusade or you know there are so many different 
stories, real people, Christians through the ages. What a beautiful experience that was. You know, as we began to look at the churches, he said to me, when you go into these places, don't forget to look down. Now, our natural tendency when we go into a place like this is to look up because there are these huge, massive, vaulted spaces and we come in and we, we kind of do this. Look at all those ancient columns and painted domes and we look up. But as I began to look down, I began to see some different things. I began to see these these beautiful, beautiful floors, inlaid marble, beautiful mosaics, um, painted crests of kings and popes, whole stories from the Bible, like this one telling the story of Solomon and the decision about what to do with the baby. Laying under the feet, huge brass grills that covered the tombs of saints and popes and martyrs. And you'd miss it all if you didn't look down, if you didn't look in front of you to see what's right there. I found it amazing that craftsmen work sometimes for years and years, better part of their lifetime, to create so many beautiful things that were just going to be walked over and stood on. I think sometimes we go looking for joy in all the wrong places. God puts so much joy right in front of us that we fail to see what God has placed under our feet. Before we left for our trip, I read a book by a man named Christopher Belito. He's uh, an expert on medieval Christianity, and I knew there's a lot of the medieval period we were going to see. And he talked about how some of these church buildings took more than 100 years to build. So some people started them and never saw the finish of them in their lifetime. Can you imagine being a craftsman there, never seeing the completeness? You might wonder when you think about all that, you know, why spend all that time and effort and money just to build a building? But he said that the, the perspective was not our perspective. It was a different perspective. He said this building to them was not just a building. This building was a prayer. It was a prayer to God. And each part is meant to draw our attention upwards to God. You think about all the ages of people who didn't know how to read or write. This was God in picture in many ways. And so I spent time looking upwards into corners and places where I wouldn't normally look to see what was there. And I found, you can't hardly see it in this picture, but way, way up in that circular rotunda at the top, there is a statue up there. It's life-size. And you can't see it. can't see it from the ground. I can see there's a figure up there, but unless I start looking through my telephoto lens, I can't see that statue. 
but some craftsman spent a significant part of his life carving that beautiful statue and putting it way, way up there in that niche where I can't get a good look at it. And you wonder, why would he do that? Why do we do that? It's because we weren't meant to see the statue. It's not for us. The statue is the artist's prayer to God. And he put it there so that God would see it. That God would experience it and find joy in it. More than 50 feet up there. Isn't that what happens when we worship God? When we worship God, we're looking up into those spaces we might not normally look into. And we see God's face often looking back. Our worship is not for others. Our worship is for God to see and to hear and to experience. It's an offering. And in the offering, there's joy. Let's face it, our lives can be pretty dark sometimes. The joy of Advent is the promise of the coming of the light. Jesus came to bring light into the darkness and give us a reason to rejoice. And he promises to come again and make that joy permanent. In the meantime, we have to find joy elsewhere and we can find it in those things that he's placed right in front of us, put right at our feet. And we can find God himself in worship and praise. Joy has been involved in the Advent story in every part of it, going back that 1,100 years. Jubilation for the coming of the Lord Messiah. Promises through the prophets. Joy, unexpected joy in all kinds of places. Like when Zechariah, you know, spontaneously bursts into song at the birth of his son because he knows this is not just his son. This is the forerunner of the Messiah. This is the one who's going to get everything ready. And he bursts into joyful song. And Mary goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth and that baby, it says, leaps in joy in her womb. And then one of the most beautiful pieces of scripture is Mary's, what we call sometimes the Magnificat. Mary bursts into song about this beautiful baby that God has given her a piece of his redemptive work. He's given her this, this place in the redemptive story to bear the Christ child. And, and she's singing her heart out. She's rejoicing and the Lord, there is joy, sometimes in unexpected places. Later on, I love the way the Beatitudes end. When you look at the Beatitudes, what's the last part of the Beatitudes? Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. It looks to a day when the longing has ended, when the waiting has ended. When the darkness has been dispelled 
by the light. Where's the joy we need? Where is it? Where's the joy we need right now? It's right here. If we look down, and we see what God's placed in front of us, and then we lift our eyes and we focus on God himself through Jesus. Trying to find joy in a situation can be futile because sometimes there just isn't any. We need to be gut honest about that. But finding joy in Jesus, that's a different thing. In Jesus, we can find joy in the darkness. In a moment, we're going to share communion together, the Lord's Supper. It commemorates the death of Jesus on the cross for our sins. The bread represents his broken body. The wine represents his shed blood. And I invite you to imagine, what if Jesus had focused on the agony and the suffering and the impending death and the darkness? What if Jesus had put all of his attention there? Do you think he would have gone through with it? But he was focused on doing his Father's will and on the victory it was going to bring over sin and death on the resurrection and on the return to the Father's side and on that period of waiting which in his terms of eternity is a short period of time before he returns for us and to establish his kingdom in the second advent. As we prepare our hearts this morning, why not be honest with God? Why not be bold? Why not tell God what you're longing for? What's the longing of your heart? Ask him to help you find joy in the dark places through Jesus. This is also a really good time to renew your vows with God, to confess your sin and ask forgiveness and get right. We're going to have some moments of silent prayer, and I encourage you to talk to God about these important things. And then receive his forgiveness. Don't just sit. Don't just wallow in sin. Receive his forgiveness and walk free. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we open ourselves to receive the gift of your Son. We thank you for his death for our sins and his resurrection, that promise of eternal life with you. We ask that you please hear our silent prayer right now as we prepare our hearts. Lord, we thank you for hearing our prayers. And we thank you for your forgiveness. We pledge our lives again to follow you and to live for you. We ask that you would empower us to do so. In Jesus' name, amen.